Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. This is an extraordinary story that I want to tell you today, and I'm going to try to do it with the help of some slides and pictures. It's a story of a man who, in a very real way, transformed himself and at the same time transformed a movement and was able to take a message that was rather strange in the contemporary world about messianism and about redemption and about the world coming to a kind of denouement, a kind of end and a transformation of the world in terms that many people would have thought completely out of the ordinary and really not meaningful at all in the 20th century and and now even in the 21st century. And yet uh, it is a story that is not at all a simple one. And what we have tried to do in this book, and uh, the good news is that what I'm not going to be able to tell you today, you can all find in the book. So whatever I don't manage to cover in the 50 or so minutes that I have this afternoon, I guarantee you the best knowledge that we have on the subject we put into this book. It is a story of intrigue and, as I said a moment ago, of personal transformation. Uh, I know that it is a book that has also been very controversial in many uh, quarters, certainly for people who look to Menachem Mendel Schneerson as somebody who was not only a religious leader, but, as uh, uh, Professor Hechter said, really reached the point of, for many, being the incarnation of the Messiah himself, it is difficult for us to talk about him as a normal human being. What we often like to say when my co-author and I, when we talk about this subject is that the Lubavitchers made him into a false Messiah and we've tried to transform him back into a human being. We've tried to really restore our understanding of what happened to him And it is a story, as I said, of a man who went through profound transformation, who was absolutely convinced that whatever plans he had in his life, that there was a destiny that God had for him and that God was operating in history. And regardless of whatever plans he had and whatever plans that that his life seemed to be on a trajectory towards, that God intervened in that life and transformed that trajectory and left him with a mission, a mission that would not only take this obscure and relatively small group of Hasidim, you know, people often talk about uh, Lubavitcher Hasidim are in the hundreds of thousands. Well, it's not so. There's at most somewhere around 50 to 60,000 Lubavitcher Hasidim in the world. It is not by any means the largest Hasidic group in America or in the world, but it is a group that is known far beyond the boundaries of its local concentration in Crown Heights, Brooklyn today. It is a movement that has found a way to reach across a whole variety of boundaries. And the reason that it has done that is partly a testament a testament to the events of this man's life and to a great extent the events of what we call his afterlife because 
he continues to have a profound impact both on the movement and the people who are his emissaries or shluchim, even from the grave. So let's begin with the part of the story that everybody knows. The part of the story that everybody knows is that Lubavitch, which is a movement that began in uh, Russia, in white Russia, in a small town of Lubavitch, and Lubavitch is only one of the strains of a larger group of Hasidim who call themselves Chabad Hasidim. It's the only strain that is left today. And they saw themselves as, by and large, being engaged in a kind of intellectual Hasidism. Chabad stands for Chachma Bina Vadat, which means wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. It's a Kabbalistic notion. Hasidism is a pietistic movement. It is a mystical movement. But the Lubavitchers and Chabad were known for emphasizing scholarship and learning and created a whole variety of their own books, their own literature. But part of that scholarship and learning was transformed over the course of history. And today, they are something quite different from what they ever were before. Today, in a project that really owes its origins to the last three of their seven Rebbes, or leaders. There have been seven Lubavitcher Hasidic Rebbes, starting with the original Schneer Zalman of Liadi and ending with the most recent Menachem Mendel, who died in 1994. And these Rebbes, by and large, were saw themselves as engaged in a process which they traced to a story that the original Rebbe articulated of an encounter that the founder of Hasidism, the Baal Shem Tov, Yisrael ben Eliezer, had with the Messiah. He went up to heaven, as this legend goes, and in heaven he encountered the Messiah and he asked the Messiah, when will you come? The question, of course, the Jewish people have been asking that question for millennia. You know, we, the Jewish people, invented the idea of a Messiah, but we've been very bad at accepting Messiahs. We invent the idea, and every, every time someone presents himself as the candidate, we say, no, not the right one. There's a whole series of people throughout Jewish history who've presented themselves as the candidate. So the Baal Shem Tov encounters the Messiah in heaven, and he says, when are you going to come? And the answer that the Messiah gives him is when you have spread the wellsprings of knowledge, what kind of knowledge? The knowledge that you have, that there's a way for you to have a kind of out-of-body experience and encounter me directly when you have spread that understanding to all the people, meaning all the Jewish people, that's when I'll come. Now that's a very complicated, esoteric, difficult to understand answer. And what Lubavitchers did in the course of the last three Rebbes is try to transform that piece of information into a program. And what was that program? Well, the program was finding a way to send the message out to the world at large. How to do that? Originally, every Rebbe 
the, the connection between a Rebbe or a Tzaddik or the, the leader, the charismatic leader of a Hasidic movement and his followers or, or his Hasidim is they all want to be close to the Rebbe because for them the Rebbe is the mediator, the connector between them and God. They don't encounter God directly. They encounter God through the Rebbe. They encounter their religion through the Rebbe. They encounter the world through the Rebbe. But of course, as life goes on, sometimes it's difficult to be in touch with the Rebbe. And so the Rebbe would create a means by which he could continue to be in touch with his Hasidim. And that means for the Lubavitchers was to send out emissaries or shluchim. Now, by and large, the role of shluchim is the Rebbe is in one place, his Hasidim are elsewhere, he sends out emissaries to his Hasidim, and they find out what the Rebbe is thinking, what is the Rebbe's message. That's the way they remain in contact with him. And then, as often as possible, they come to his court to break bread with him, to be in his presence, to share in his charisma. By the time, and I'm going to jump forward to what we all know, by the time the 20th century came around, the fifth Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber, who died in 1920, came to the conclusion that it was important to send emissaries out to his Hasidim because he began the process of what happened in Chabad, what happened to Lubavitch, of running through space of leaving their base in Lubavitch. He left his base in Lubavitch because he was terribly afraid of what was happening in the First World War. And he wasn't afraid so much about the battles, but he was afraid of the Germans. And why was he afraid of the Germans? He was afraid of the Germans because German culture he saw as being the greatest threat for Jewish culture. German culture was an opportunity, and what was happening to German Jewry, he was very aware of, of an opportunity to acculturate, to assimilate, to move out of the ghetto, out of the the narrow confines of observant and orthodox Judaism. So he began to run from the Germans, and as he ran, he sent his emissaries to his Hasidim to keep them strong in their beliefs. But the 20th century, as you know, wasn't just the 20th century of the First World War. It was a time of huge migration and, of course, of the Holocaust and of the Second World War. And when the dust had settled on the 20th century, by the mid, the end of the 1940s and into the 1950s, just the time when the character that we're talking about becomes the leader in 1951, At that point, the idea of sending emissaries to other Hasidim from their Rebbe no longer made the same kind of sense because one could be in touch with the Rebbe much more easily in a whole variety of ways. The question now was, what should be the role of emissaries? And the sixth Rebbe, the son of the man that I just talked about, Rabbi Joseph Yitzchak, the man who would be the predecessor to Menachem Mendel and his father-in-law, Near the end of his life, when he comes to the United States, running from the Nazis, running after a life that itself was a series of cataclysms, and I'll return to him in a few moments, comes to the conclusion 
that all of these changes that have been going on in history are a sign of the coming of the Messiah. It can only mean that we are entering the end of history, this running, this transformation of the world, and it is now time to spread the wellsprings. And how can we spread the wellsprings? How can we do this change? How can we bring about the conditions that will bring the Messiah to the world? And he says, we have to transform Jewry itself. And says that instead of sending emissaries to other Hasidim, maybe we should start to send our emissaries to the entire Jewish world. And not just anyone in the Jewish world, but the parts of the Jewish world that have come out of, that have fallen out of touch with their Jewish roots and their Jewish origins. And that becomes his message as he comes to America in 1941, saved in a dramatic story from the jaws of the Nazis, saved by a half-Jew who was a Nazi leader, saved by the State Department, who had been convinced by Lubavitcher leaders in New York that this rabbi was the Pope of the Jews, and if the Americans could save him, then that would satisfy American Jewry. He comes to America, Rabbi Joseph Yitzchak, a tired, broken man, suffering from multiple sclerosis, heart disease, overweight, a heavy smoker, difficult for him to talk at this point. But he comes here and he says, I am coming to America because it's the lowest part purified, the, the, the most impure part of the world. Every one of these rabbis, these orthodox rabbis, these religious leaders who had come to America after the Holocaust had to somehow explain why did the Holocaust happen. They had to account for this evil. After all, these were the same leaders who said to their followers, who said to their people, don't leave Europe for America because that's a place where Jews might survive, but Judaism will not, because it's a place where Jews don't observe anything. Don't go to Israel, which is a heresy as far as they were concerned, because Zionism was a secular socialist movement that they wanted no part of. And then it turns out that they were wrong, that the very advice that they had given to their people to stay where they were turned out to be bad advice. So Yosef Yitzhak was one of those. And he comes to America and he has to come to some kind of explanation for these events of history. And he's brought to America by Jews who were not observant Jews. He's helped by reformed Jews. He's helped by unaffiliated Jews. He's helped by people in the State Department who are not even Jewish, many of whom were even anti-Semitic. And he comes to America... And he says to the leaders in America, I have come to redeem America. And the reason for the Holocaust, he says, is you. You're the reason for the Holocaust. Your failure to observe Jewish life, your failure to transform yourself Jewishly, that is why the Holocaust happened. And if you don't change, he says then that burning day that our fellow Jews have been suffering 
in Europe will happen here. Well, as you can guess, this does not make friends and influence people in America. And he put up posters all over New York where he lived that said, La alter le chuva, la alter geula. The faster you repent, the faster the redemption will come. Because he said, we are living in the days of the Messiah. The Messiah comes when there's darkness, when there's nothing else around right after the apocalypse. This is the apocalypse. Change your way and redemption will come. And then he dies. He dies and no Messiah, no redemption, and the uh, Jewish people haven't changed one iota. He dies in 1950, in January of 1950, and his followers are absolutely floored. What do we do now? Where do we go? We believed in our Rebbe. We believed our Rebbe was, was telling us the truth, that we were just on the verge of the Messiah. And how will we get there? And there's a, an extraordinary period of an interregnum because the Rebbe had three daughters, the sixth Rebbe. His oldest daughter, Hannah Gurari, was married to his right-hand man, a man named Shmaryahu Gurari, who literally sat on his right hand, who was his helper all the way through. His middle daughter was married to Menachem Mendel Schneerson. We'll talk about him in a moment. His youngest daughter was married to Menachem Mendel Hornstein. They had not made it out of Europe and they perished in Poland in the Holocaust. And his followers now were saying, well, what do we do now? And after the extraordinary interregnum, where everyone expected that the next Rebbe would be his only living heir, his grandson, the son of his oldest daughter, Barry Gurari, Shalom Dov Ber Gurari, the son of the oldest daughter and of his right-hand man, Shmaryahu Gurari. But as it happens in a story that I can't go into now, but is in the book that is really quite a coup, his second son-in-law, who seemed destined for a very different life, becomes the Rebbe. And he says to his followers, he says, from the moment of his first speech as a Rebbe, he says, our Rebbe didn't die. He didn't die. He's still with us. He just went to the other side He's in heaven and he's arguing with the Messiah to convince him and to persuade him to come here now and bring the redemption. And he is going to succeed. And how do I know that? He tells me. Because Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the second son-in-law, who had been destined for a very different life, is getting messages, he says, from his father-in-law, at his father-in-law's grave, on a regular basis, and throughout his life, from the moment he became Rebbe, he never left New York again. He went twice out of Brooklyn to some summer camp 
that Lubavitch had in the Catskill Mountains. But beyond that, the only time he left Brooklyn, or as he called it, Lubavitch, was to go to Queens and the gravesite of his father-in-law. And there he brought back messages and never called himself the Rebbe, but rather Mimale Mikomo, the stand-in for his father-in-law. And what was the first message that he had? The first message was that not only is the Rebbe still working to bring the Mashiach, he may in fact be the Mashiach himself, meaning his father-in-law, and we have to prepare the road for that because we can hasten the coming of the Messiah. And how do we hasten the coming of the Messiah? We are going to send emissaries to every Jew that we can find as far as that Jew is. And that's what we see here. This is just one of the latest pictures of the emissaries. They realized there was no point in sending emissaries to other Hasidim anymore. And so Lubavitch created an alternative reality to send emissaries to Jews who were unaffiliated, unattached, and bring them closer. But what they decided was it was not just the Jews, but Jewish acts that mattered. In 1961, on the day before Purim, the holiday of Purim, it so happens a young president of the United States by the name of John F. Kennedy gave a speech talking about the Peace Corps. You've all heard that speech or you've all heard about the Peace Corps. And in that speech he said something like, it's not going to be easy you're going to have to go out and live in places that are not as comfortable as the places you're used to. You're going to have to go out there and bring the message of the United States to all of these people and what we can do, but you will be on a mission. The next day, the new Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was only 10 years on the job, said to his followers, you're going to have to be emissaries You're going to have to live in ways that are not very comfortable. You're going to have to go down and live with people where they are, with these Jews where they are, and bring them back. You're going to have to go down to their level, at that lowest level of their Jewish involvement, and transform them. And what is it that he wants? He wants to be able to transform the entire world. Now, you probably can recognize this picture. This is one of the more successful shluchim, a man by the name of Shlomo Kunin, who is dancing with what was then the governor, that you should all be familiar with. And the role of Chabad became, how can we be publicly Jewish? The concern of Chabad was, how can we be publicly Jewish? How can we bring people back? The, The goal was to create Jewish acts in public. What would be the most public way of showing that you're Jewish? Well, they began, the Rebbe, the seventh Rebbe began with a series of campaigns. And they used the language that is familiar to all of us. And the first of these campaigns was the Tefillin campaign. What's the Tefillin campaign? The Tefillin campaign is where a Chabad Chassid stands on the street and stops a male, and says, first question is, excuse me, are you Jewish? Now, they want to be able to take yes for an answer. So 
part of their concern was being able to define someone as Jewish, that there be some control over who is Jewish, that not everybody can decide, well, I'm part Jewish, I have a Jewish father, or I, I'm, I'm a quarter Jewish. They didn't want that. They want, in a very fundamentalistic way, you're either with us or not with us. You're one of us or you're not one of us. Leaving that aside, what happens next? If you say yes, they ask you to put on tefillin. Now, what does putting on tefillin mean? Tefillin, of course, are these uh, amulets, or sometimes we call them phylacteries, that men wear in their daily prayers. What does it mean to put on tefillin in public? Tefillin is not something that anybody who is not Jewish will wear. Putting on tefillin in public means taking a Jewish act in public, not being embarrassed to do something exceedingly Jewish, doing it in the face of everyone, and by virtue of that, saying, I am a Jew, and I am not going to hide it. For Lubavitchers, it wasn't just transforming people. They came to the conclusion, as their Rebbe suggested, that every Jewish act had cosmic significance. And if you have enough Jewish acts, you tip the balance, and when enough Jewish acts have taken place, the Messiah will come. That's what it means to spread the wellsprings. So they engaged in a whole variety of these Jewish acts. There was the tefillin campaign, and of course, the famous lighting of the Hanukkah menorah in public. That too was to take something specifically, extraordinarily Jewish, put it in public, and make sure that everyone sees in the public square we are being Jewish in a very public way. And they were able to do this in a whole variety of ways. And because they were so successful, of course, creating this idea of emissaries and shluchim to the world at large, transformed what it meant to be a Lubavitcher Chassid. What it meant to be a Lubavitcher Chassid now meant not to sit in a yeshiva and study texts. It meant to go out. If you're a Lubavitcher if you're a Satmar Chassid or a Belzer Chassid or any other kind of Chassid, when you're born, you pretty much know what your life is going to be like. The pattern is set. You're going to live within the community. You're going to grow within the community. And after 120 years, you're going to die in the community. But if you're a Lubavitcher Chassid, you can go anywhere. You can go to Santa Barbara. You can go to the Virgin Islands. You can go to Kathmandu. You can go wherever a Jew is found. And what you're going to do when you find that Jew is you want to get that Jew to do a Jewish act. And where are you going to find Jews who are most assimilated, who are the furthest from Jewish life? Where's a good place to find them? The campuses, the malls, the public squares. And so you create a presence in those places. And how do you attract them? Well, you attract them, and what Chabad has been tremendously successful at doing is they don't just send out a single emissary. They send them out in pairs, husband and wife. They create a Chabad family. So if you have a Chabad house on campus, what is the attraction of the Chabad house? What do they say? Come in, you'll have a meal with us, you'll have a L'chaim with us. You know, a lot of 
booze there. You'll come, you'll be part of a family, and what's the Chabad, how's the Chabad family different from your own family? Very different. They don't ask, so tell me, how are you doing in, in your classes? Do you have any plans for the future? They don't ask any of those uncomfortable questions. You can have a direct family experience, no strings attached. All they ask is, have a Shabbos meal. Maybe study a Jewish text. Maybe put on tefillin. And if you say, well, I'll do that, but I don't want to commit for the long term, that's fine. They're interested in getting people to do these Jewish acts in public, in identifying themselves as Jews. And they came to believe that not only were they successfully doing this, but that the man who sent them, because he had been so successful in creating this movement, in creating this world, that he was indeed bringing the Messiah closer and perhaps even as they came to the conclusion that he was the Messiah himself. And of course, they created a whole series of tools. Everything from, they saw themselves as an army, an alternative army to the army in Israel. They believed that their army was much more successful. Their tanks were the mitzvah tanks. Their soldiers were the tzivos Hashem. And the language they used was the language of America. Not all of those details of 613 commandments. Of course they believed in those, but they didn't put that up front. They said, Mashiach is here, we want him now. Just add in goodness and kindness. Who could be against that? That's very good. That's very easy. They wanted Messiah now, Mashiach now. We can do that. We can be active in our involvement. And how did they demonstrate their power? One of the most interesting ways is they saw this in events like the, uh, the first Gulf War. Let me talk a little bit about the first Gulf War. Clearly there were two forces in Jewish life that were driven by a conviction that what they were doing was hastening the moment of redemption. One were the Lubavitchers that I've talked about. But there was another group that believed that there were events bringing about Jewish redemption. And that other group were in Israel, settlers, who believed that by settling more and more of the land that God gave them, they were going to bring the redemption. And how did they know that? Well, look, in six days they were able to conquer huge swath of lands against uh, myriad armies that rose against them in 1967. And then again in 1973, they'd retaken Jerusalem. They were convinced that there was religious significance in their act. Chabad said, no, that's not what brings the redemption. The Six-Day War, they said, was not won by the Israeli army of unbelievers. The Six-Day War was won by the Tefillin campaign. When the Arabs saw the soldiers, some soldiers putting on Tefillin, they got frightened, and that's what brought about the victory. But the war that, prevent, that, that convinced them more than any other that the Rebbe was controlling and governing history and bringing the redemption closest 
was the first Gulf War. How was the first Gulf War a victory of the Rebbe? In the first Gulf War, as you may recall, after the Americans attacked Saddam, what did Saddam do as a response? He sent scuds, rockets, against Israel. And the Americans knew that that would happen. And before that war, there was a great deal of fear that there would be chemical weapons, weapons of mass destruction. And in Israel, lots of gas masks were given out. And to get a gas mask on somebody who has a beard, you have to get a very special kind of a gas mask. And so the Lubavitcher Hasidim asked their Rebbe, do we have to get those gas masks? And he said, no, nothing will happen. I will protect you. Nothing will happen. You don't have to run away. You don't have to get those special gas masks. You don't have to shave your beards. That war was the only war where the Israelis were attacked and didn't do anything. Not a single airplane flew. Not a single countermeasure was taken. No attacks were taken by Israel. How many casualties did Israel suffer with all the scuds that were rained down on Israel? How many casualties did Israel suffer during the Gulf War? Zero. One man died of a heart attack when a scud landed near his home. The Lubavitchers said, you see, when the Rebbe fights a war, there are no casualties and we win. So powerful has been the conviction that they came to the conclusion that this man was moving history, that this man was in control of events in the world, and that he was indeed fighting a war on their behalf. And he argued, not I, but my predecessor. Who was he? I'm going to jump a little in the interests of time. Who was this man? And how did he reach this point in his life of being absolutely convinced and convincing his followers that the redemption was near and the, the actions that they, were taken, that they were taking would bring the redemption. He was born in Russia in the town of Nikolaev to uh, Levi Yitzchak Schneerson and Hannah Schneerson. He was a cousin of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. But he was a man who uh, was not destined for being a leader of Lubavitch at all. In fact, uh, his parents were very interested in his having a very general education. The man who would be the Lubavitcher Rebbe never went to a yeshiva in his life. Never went to a Chabad yeshiva, which were then becoming the most important aspect of what it meant to be a young Lubavitcher chassid. In fact, his parents saw to it that he got a general education, much of that education coming from people who were not at all observant, many of them socialists, secularists, Zionists. And as a result of that, this young boy became tremendously interested in science and in mathematics. And it became his dream to become an engineer. But the problem that he had 
in being accepted to be an engineer was that he never went to college. And he never went to high school. He didn't have a high school diploma. In order to get a college degree, you had to have a high school diploma. So he went first to the Polytechnic Institute in the town in Russia where his father had become a rabbinic leader. But he went there and was not able to get accepted into the degree-granting program. So his next stop was to go to Leningrad, St. Petersburg, the big city in Russia, and hoped that he would be accepted to the university there. When he came to St. Petersburg, for the first time, he came in contact with his cousin. His cousin, this man, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, had come to St. Petersburg, had come there to create his court anew. His father had been running. In 1920, he became the new Rebbe, the only son of his father. And he came to St. Petersburg, which was the largest city where he hoped he would be able to expand his court. And he arranged to allow his cousin to live with him during those days that he was going to study at the university. And they established a relationship. It was a relationship that was close. And it was in St. Petersburg that Menachem Mendel's quest for his dream to become an engineer really begins. He also meets there the three daughters of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, his cousins. The eldest is already married to Shmariahu Gurari, the man you see here on the right of the Rebbe, his right-hand man. And they have a son, the young boy you see in the picture on the left here in the hat, uh, the young boy on the left of the Rebbe, who was his heir. And in Leningrad, he, Menachem Mendel begins this friendship with the second daughter. The sixth Rebbe had become extremely important after Russia had fallen to the Soviets. Most of the rabbinic and Jewish leaders ran out of the Soviet Union. But one remained behind, one prominent one who had a network, a network of his emissaries. And the Joint Distribution Committee and World Jewry, after the Soviet Union came to power and the rise of what we now, what we later would call the Iron Curtain, were concerned about how can we support Jews inside the Soviet Union. And they came to the conclusion that the best way to do that was to find someone inside who could distribute money that would allow Jews to have matzahs and take care of their Jewish needs. And the man that they decided would do that was Rabbi Yosef Yitzchok Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe. And that made him tremendously important. It made him have a network of connections. But it also made him suspect to the new Soviet authorities. And they arrested him. One night at midnight, the secret police of the Soviet Union came to arrest Yosef Yitzchak. And on that night, Menachem Mendel 
and the second daughter of Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Musia were not home. They were out on a date. Perhaps they were in the theater. It's not clear what they were doing. But then they came home at midnight. They saw the lights on in the house. And they saw all the police cars in front. And Musia said, stay here, Mendel. I'm going to go upstairs. I'll see what's going on. And I'll come to the window and I'll let you know if it's safe to come in. She went upstairs. Of course, the police were there. And she goes to the window, and it's not clear exactly how she gave him the signal, but he ran away. And Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak was arrested on that night, and he thought perhaps going to his death. And before he left, he walked over to the crib of this young boy who you see here at his bar mitzvah and announced that he had a blessing for that young boy who he said was first among his brothers. Now, he had no brothers. He was an only child. He was the only living heir of the Rebbe. And he said in so many words that this boy, if something should happen to me, this boy will be the next Rebbe. But that boy did not become the next Rebbe, as we know. Much later, the man sitting on the left of the Rebbe, not his right-hand man, would become the next Rebbe. Why did he become the next Rebbe? For a long time, he sought to be an engineer. He went to Berlin. After marriage, the two of them were in Berlin, again in Berlin in Humboldt University. He sought to get a degree in engineering. Again, he was not accepted because he did not have the necessary education. So he audited in 1932, he finally gives up the idea of becoming an engineer in Berlin and runs to Paris because by 1932, it was very clear that the atmosphere in Germany was becoming very powerfully anti-Semitic. He's living in Berlin. It's not a place with many Hasidim. His now wife, who he'd married while he was in Berlin, the daughter of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, they're living in Germany, the very culture that the Lubavitcher, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, had warned his followers against, who he was worried about, and that the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe really condemned. He did not want, did not believe in the idea of an education, a university education together with a religious education. And yet he paid the bills for his son-in-law and daughter to live in Berlin. And his son-in-law and daughter run away to Paris. And in Paris, here are the three daughters. You can see they don't paint the picture of a, of a uh, narrow parochial family. In Paris, finally, Menachem Mendel is accepted to a small technical school where he manages, after two years of preparation, to be accepted as a student. And after four years, finally achieves his dream. He gets a degree as an engineer. He's very proud of that degree. I want to jump forward and show you. Uh, I don't have here a uh, laser pointer, but if you look in the first column, at uh, just before that, the first break there, you'll see M. Schneerson, engineer, electrical, mechanical, and his address. He was very proud of the fact that he was an engineer, had himself listed as such, and dreamt and hoped that he would be able to work as an engineer. 
but he doesn't get a job as an engineer. It's a time when refugees are pouring in to France. Everybody is running from the Nazi onslaught. During all of this time, Menachem Mendel Schneerson is not involved in Jewish life particularly. He's not living in a Jewish neighborhood, neither in Berlin nor in Paris. He's not engaged in teaching the Jewish refugees about Jewish life, he, as his cousins are. He is interested in one thing and one thing only. And what he is interested in is what he had every right to be interested in, pursuing a life that would bring him his dream of living. He tries to become a, a citizen in France, of living in Paris, in an area that is bohemian, becoming an engineer. And his wife wants the same thing. She didn't want a rebbe, she wanted a rebel. She wanted somebody who was outside the life that she'd grown up in. But all of that falls apart. It falls apart because of the Holocaust. It falls apart because those dreams do not reach fulfillment. And finally, he is saved, not because he's a rabbi. They tried to have him saved as a rabbi, but they can't find any evidence. There was a quota that allowed clergy to come into the United States during the war. That's how they were able to get Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak in. And he tries to bring the two remaining sons-in-laws and daughters that he has in Europe, but neither of them is really a rabbi. And as much as they try to find some evidence that he's a rabbi, they can't find any documents of ordination. He's not in a yeshiva. He's not acting as a rabbi. He's not living as a rabbi. He's an engineer. There's all the evidence that he's an engineer. And finally, they managed to bring him out as a former uh, Soviet uh, Jew, an emigre, a refugee. And he comes to America. His parents are left behind in the Soviet Union. His father had been arrested, sent uh, to Almaty in the middle of Russia, and died there. He's all alone. By 1944, he's in America. He's come to America in 1941. And he's trying to figure out what does all of this mean? And this is the question that often people ask. How did he transform himself from being an engineer seeking this life to ending up as the Lubavitcher Rebbe? And maybe I'll just close with what he says at this point in his life, trying to figure out How did it come to this? And he's looking at himself in this moment of uh, his father is is dead. He's been saying Kaddish every day. He's living in Lubavitch. He's finally been saved. And the thing that saved him was his connection to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The thing that saved him was this transformation of himself Most of European Jewry had been crushed and burned. The Jews in the Soviet Union were trapped and seemed lost, while those in Palestine were locked in a battle for survival, and he was safe in New York. Surely this evoked in him deep religious questions and perplexity, perhaps even disorientation. Did he now feel guilt or have second thoughts that when others had been working against the Nazis and the Soviets and on behalf of the Jews, 
He was nowhere to be seen or heard. This is the same man who later would be really the, the leader of an outreach campaign to transform world jewelry and bring about the redemption. Did it concern him that he was not in the battle for Jerusalem or in Israel with his brother? Did he wonder why his fellow student and cousin Mendel Hornstein and his wife Shana were dead while he and Musia were safe in America? He and Musia were now in a place that they never expected to be. He never expected to come to New York to be in America. He must have been deeply disconcerted by all these developments. What, he wondered, was the meaning of his own survival. The theological difficulties that this raised for him must have been disquieting as they were for many survivors. All survivors had to ask themselves, why did I survive? What is the meaning of my survival? It was disquieting for him, especially those who were religious believers and even more those who had taken Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak's messianic message seriously. Like so many of his contemporaries, he could not deny the tragic condition of the Jewish people, the horror of the Holocaust and what it meant about God's relationship to the Jews and the promises of redemption that his Rebbe, Yosef Yitzchak, had made so vigorously during the preceding years. Gewalt, Mendel wrote. The Messiah told the Baal Shem Tov that he would come with him when he spreads the wellsprings to the outside. And this task was given to us to lead. And what are we doing about it? We are suffering in exile, even though the Rebbe in his speeches promised that redemption would come quickly in our days. He's looking at his life and the only answer the only solution, the only thing that he can latch on to that will prove that there is meaning to his life is that it must mean the redemption is here. The gewalt is a kind of cry from the heart. This is a man who's seeing that the world had turned upside down and that there was a plan for him, but it wasn't his plan, came to the conclusion that it is possible (coughs) for everyone who has had other plans in life, whether it was to become an engineer, whether it was to go to some campus and be something else, whether it was to be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever, that people could be drawn back and change their lives if they understood that God had a plan for them and that that plan led to redemption. He knew it was possible because it happened to him. If he could be transformed, and he hadn't been that far away. After all, he was still in the family of the Rebbe. If he could be transformed, if he could change his life, if he could recognize that there was something going on beyond the realm of reason and that it must be the messianic, the the birth pangs of the Messiah, then everyone could be made to understand that. And with that realization that begins with the first speech he gave his Rebbe and ends near the end of his life where the Messiah campaign became so active that, that his followers walked around with little beepers that would go off when the Messiah revealed himself and were absolutely convinced that he was the man. And women carried uh, little timbrels so that they could just as, as at the, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, the women 
after Miriam began with the timbrels, he was absolutely convinced that this transformation could come about. And then, of course, he dies. And his followers are in exactly the same place that they were 40, 50 years before, when nearly 50 years before, when the previous Rebbe died. And now they realize something, <coughs> excuse me, that they had heard from him then. The Rebbe didn't die. You know, there's a joke about what's the difference between Moses and the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Moses, we know he died, we don't know where he's buried. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, we know where he's buried, but we're not sure that he died. <coughs> there is this sense that as long as they are on the mission for him, he still lives. And that's why the mission goes on now even more vigorously than before. And where is the Rebbe? The Rebbe's on reruns. Maybe I'll end with this little anecdote. When, when the Rebbe was sick <clears throat> in his last years, he'd been taken by a stroke, ironically, while he was at the graveside of his predecessor, he was taken in a stroke. And for the last several years of his life, he couldn't speak. He was really, he was a captive of his own world. And during that period of time, a lot of reporters, especially during the last days when he was in Beth Israel Hospital, and, and his followers were massing around and they were signing petitions that the Rebbe should reveal himself as the Messiah and rise from his illness and the redemption should come as they had been pressing him to do in the last years of his life. And the reporters would call me and they'd say, well, Professor Highland, tell us, what happens if the Rebbe dies? So I said, if? If the Rebbe dies? What, what, what kind of question is that? The Rebbe's a man. As far as we know, everyone dies, and the Rebbe is going to die too. And of course, they said, nervous laughter. Yes, of course, I have. When the Rebbe dies, what happens? And it's the only prediction I ever made that I got right. I said he'll be on reruns. And it's true. To this day, you can watch the Rebbe online. There are films of the Rebbe. He is on reruns. They read his letters again and again. When they want answers from him, they open the book of his letters. If they don't like the answer, they close the book and open it again. They see him. He is a presence in their lives. And you might say, well, come on, that's not the same. If you've ever seen some of the people on television, <clears throat> people who come up to Letterman and say, oh, I feel I know you. <clears throat> You're in my bedroom every night. Of course, they don't know him. But there's something about images. I've had Hasidim say to me, you know, I never realized the Lubavitcher Rebbe had blue eyes because when he was alive, I was afraid to look him in the eye. But now I can see him face to face. So as long as he's on reruns, as long as he's alive for them, the line between death and life becomes blurred. And as the emissaries are on, still carrying on the mission... Now, according to Jewish law, if someone sends you on a mission, if you become a shaliach, an emissary, a messenger, as long as you are on that mission, 
he gets credit for what you're doing, even if he's dead. So as long as his followers are on the mission, he's alive. He's alive for them. And in a real sense, as long as Chabad is out there and working its way through the Jewish world, he's alive for everyone else. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.